0: So will you now turn with me to the third chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. And I trust one or two thoughts may be of service to us. With regard to the warning which is so necessary that our brother gave. Some year or two back now I remember somebody coming in this door and uh, very much this sort of person I don't like the person whose hand goes up and down much like that, but uh, I have a disconcerting way, I believe, of of cutting a lot out and saying, coming to the what you're after. I said, look here, you're leading up to the idea that I shall say to you, oh brother, come and preach to us next Sunday. He said, well, I said, look friend, these seats are as broad as redemption itself, and this pulpit's so narrow, I can hardly get into it. We'd have to know you very, very intimately before you went up there when he walked out and never came back again. But that's what's happening, you see. Somebody insidiously taking advantage of somebody, so the warning is necessary for us all. We've got a trust, and a trust means something that you're guarding and committed to you, and we have a responsibility with regard to it. Well now, let's come to this chapter 3 of Ephesians and see what lesson we can learn from one or two verses in it, because the whole chapter is so packed. And uh, those who do not come to this chapel regularly, you mustn't be surprised if I have a lapse of memory and somebody in the congregation tells me what I'm looking for. You understand, don't you? So we do the best we can with our limitations. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, then he stops. <clears throat> He's already made a claim. And that claim can be challenged. If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me, think you would. He said, I'm not making an empty claim. I have received a stewardship. And he goes on to say, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. So here's his claim straight off that he had a message, to the Gentiles particularly, that he was given a dispensation, it was given to him by revelation, and it was called the mystery. One of the things to guard against is that the word mystery in the New Testament doesn't mean anything mysterious or spooky. We don't need to put the lights out. It simply means a secret, which you can completely understand if you're told, but you can't find it out yourself. A secret now God had a fundamental line of teaching, and we must honor that. It's been emphasized this afternoon. we have four fundamental uh parts of our uh, on which we build if they go, the rest must fall. The inspiration of scripture we believe the whole Bible, not little bits of it, the efficacy and necessity of the redemptive work of Christ, the one sacrifice. The great principle of what? division. You see, these things are basic, and it doesn't matter what calling you belong to, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether it's kingdom or church, whether it's body or bride, that foundation is upon which you build. But a building, especially if it's like a temple, and he says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, you are, verse 20, you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. And when he says the chief cornerstone, Peter uses the chief cornerstone as well. Peter was on the same foundation as the apostle, but he wasn't building the same part. So there's no difference with regard to one believer or another. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The deity of Christ is redemptive work and the great principle of right division. Now, if ever you want to have a nice, easy ride and give me a lift in in the car, you'll have this one thought. I'm not a backseat driver. I don't know what you do or why you do it. But as I sat in the front, I watched all the white lines and some white lines with spots some gaps, yellow lines, all sorts of things, they were all rightly dividing that, word, that road, weren't they? And if the person says, oh, I don't believe in this nonsense of right division, there'd be an awful accident. Well, just in the same way, that word rightly dividing is found in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, in all thy ways that rod him, and he shall direct. Well, the Septuagint gives exactly the same word here. Timothy would know what it meant. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall rightly divide thy paths. And even the word die, rect. R-E-C-T is right, isn't it? Or rect anew, they say somewhere. And die, direct, divide or right. If you if, if you ask somebody somewhere out here in Morgan, could you tell me where the chapel of the open book is? is he uh, said, I think, uh, say, oh, thank you, I'll ask somebody else. But if he says, oh, turn round the corner, across the road, and there you are, that's rightly dividing. So it isn't an abstract thing that you've got to go to college to learn, you're doing it every day of your life, in all sorts of business. And so it's an essential principle. So now we have this point. There's a point here that I wanted to make, because occasionally we meet with people who are genuinely concerned And I had a friend once come to me and say, He says, You're wrong with regard to the emphasis on the idea that to the Apostle Paul himself personally was entrusted this mystery because he says, Look, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mysteries I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. So there you are. That's not peculiar. That is, I'll read it again, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles, in the plural, and prophets. Well, what was my answer? I said, you're not reading what's written. <laughs> or if you are, you're not looking at what it says. He says, I am. Well, I said, what's he talking about? He says, about the mystery. I said, you haven't completed it. Verse 4. The mystery of Christ. Oh, but he says, that's air splitting. Well, he says, in one place, the mystery. And in another place, he says, the mystery of Christ. Well, why why does he use two different terms if he doesn't mean it? Supposing all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and we ought to give attention to every detail. So I'm I'm going to speak this evening to one or two who may be uh, confronted by folks who bring up these objections. Don't let them paralyse you. Open the book. Never argue with a book shut. Open the book. Make them read from their own Bible, not yours. And then ask them some pointed questions. That's the best way. So I'm going to ask you now to see how he was demonstrating his claim to have received the mystery. I go back for the moment to an illustration, and I think it's in Matthew the ninth chapter. Keep the Ephesians three open, but go back to Matthew the ninth chapter, just to illustrate my point. Uh, I'm not sure whether I found the right place. Excuse me if I look again, will you, Luke? Luke the fifth chapter. So make up your mind, or we'll so that's it. it. Depends on what sort of mind you've got to make up, isn't it? We'll I hope you will find it. Luke the fifth uh, Luke the fifth chapter. Ah yes. This'll this will be the passage. Uh, verse six. It came to pass also on another at Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught, And there was a man whose right hand was withered. Oh, I'm reading six, aren't I? Oh dear, that's bad as ever. Now we'll come to the fifth. Yes. Uh, Verse, um, uh, where have I got it? I think it's a man sick of the palsy. We'll get it in verse 18. Here we are. And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and lay him before him. And to re- make a, a long story short, he didn't first of all say he would heal the man. He said, thy sins are forgiven thee. Well, they said, this is blasphemy. Now, the Lord said, which is easier? To say to the man sick of the palsy or to say, take up thy bed and walk? Well, of course you say, anybody could say, Thy sins be forgiven thee. But nobody can see what's happened. But if you've got a man sick of the palsy and he takes up his bed and walks, something has happened. When he says that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say that, you see. Well, now the Apostle said, well, I must give you some reason to demonstrate that I have a right to this claim. So I'm considering this word the uh, mystery of Christ. Now he says in this um, verse 3, as I wrote afore, in a few words. Now it may be, it may be that it was something he wrote and it's been lost. But somehow it seems tantalising to you and me to find in the scriptures that the apostle wrote something that would have been a great help to us and it's never been preserved. So it may be that it has been preserved. Now as I wrote before, something special and peculiar. And I think I'll have to ask you to um, notice, first of all, the way in which the Apostle has quoted Psalm 8. And then I'll give you my reasons. Don't go to Psalm 8 at first, but Psalm 8, and there are three references. Ephesians 1, 22, It speaks about Christ, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I want you to keep that passage in mind, and then turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, where your heart is on the same subject. Here it's the climax, the end to which redemption is pressing. And verses 27 and 28. Verse 25, for he must reign till he he hath put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is dead. For he hath put all things under his feet. Now that's a quotation. But when it saith, all things are put unto him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things unto him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him to put all things unto him, that God may be all in all. Now before we make any comment, the third reference is in Hebrews chapter 2. And then we'll perhaps see just what the Apostle is saying when he turns the attention to the way in which he has been treating that Old Testament passage. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. But one in a certain place testified, saying, uh, he's writing to the Hebrews, so he doesn't have to say Psalm 8, because they knew the Psalms. But of course, to us, you see, we have to add that, and then I go look at the wrong one and mislead you. So, what a people we are, aren't we? Yes. Yes. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man, that thou visitest him? Thou makest him a little lower than the angels, thou crownest him with glory and honour, and didst set him over the works of thy hands, that thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, He stops again. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. I just pause for a moment because there are those who say that Paul did not write the Epistle to the Hebrews. Well, he a very peculiar use of this passage of the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15 and in Hebrews 2, he says, "This is, with one exception, all things under his feet, except God Himself." What a strange thing for two different people! to draw the same conclusion. It sounds a bit like the Apostles' argument in both cases, doesn't it? Now then, shall we turn to Psalm 8 and see what passage he had in front of him? Psalm 8. We read just how the opens. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hast set thy glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, hast thou for ordained strength because of thy enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? or the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honour. Thou hast thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Now, what do you mean by all things under his feet? David, who wrote the psalm. Will you tell me? Yes. All sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passes through the paths of the seas. All things under his feet, sheep, oxen, and fish. But when the apostle quotes that psalm, it's all things, principalities, powers, angels, dominions, heaven and earth. Don't you see his challenge? He says, you find anybody who sees that in Psalm 8. Well, they may say, well, perhaps it's not there. Well, now there's another thing. The Old Testament was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek about 300 years before Christ. And we call it the Septuagint because the number 70 is associated with the number of those who did so. Now, this is the wonderful thing. If you turn to the Septuagint, you'll find written in every copy that's printed the words The Secrets of the sun. Now, if you look at this psalm 8, I think you'll see that it says um, at the over the psalm 9 to the chief musician upon Muslaben. Now I won't go into the question of psalm titles, but they've been split up wrongly in the authorised version. A psalm commences with a title the saab itself, a conclusion. A title, the saab itself, a conclusion. But if you cut them wrong, you get the, the the conclusion put over the next psalm. That's what they've done. But it can all be restored without altering a word. Now, excuse me if I have to just go into a little bit of sort of the language. The word uh, mus la, uh, upon mus la ben, Two letters in the Hebrew Al are translatable by the word upon. That's what they've done here, upon. But there's a possibility that it didn't say upon. That it said instead of upon both, it said almost. What do you say? What's almost? A secret. And you do know that the word bed means a son, don't you? Ben, Benjamin. Well it's written, says Paul, it's written. Psalm 8 is the secrets of the Son. Or if I'm going to speak now, says Paul, I call it the mystery of Christ. Christ is the Son. The secret is a mystery. He says, when that psalmist wrote, he said all things under his feet were sheep and oxen. But by the grace of God I can tell you something infinitely more wonderful. All things except God himself are under his feet. Now he, says, now he says, find anybody who's seen the purpose of God to excel that. Don't you see what he's done? The same as our Saviour. He said that you may believe that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. I'll say to the sick and the palsy, rise. He says, I made a claim. Well, there it is. There's a statement, and it's all been bypassed, and nobody's bothered to give it a consideration. So we come back to Ephesians chapter 3 with that little support to our emphasis. Ephesians 3, where he is claiming this question of the dispensation of the mystery. So he says, verse 4, whereby when ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed, unto his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. So that he's, he's there saying that that revelation in Psalm 8 was kept quiet and didn't speak until it was given to him and those with him. Well now he says, if that's the case, can't you believe that in association with that gift, God gave me this other? So he goes on to say or as already said how that by revelation he made known unto me The mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, and he quotes this. Now he comes back to what the mystery is. Not the mystery of Christ, the mystery itself. That the the Gentiles could be, now the word fellow and partaker, um, and the word same, are just three different attempts to translate one little word. And perhaps the easiest way to do it, although it may not be very good style in English is the word joint three times. That the Gentiles should be joint heirs. There's no differences here. Joint heirs. And a joint body, well that's a very strange thing to say, but you see, the whole body is one. And joint partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel whereof was I was made a minister. Notice the claim. When a person is always emphasising I, you get suspicious. But what can he do? He says, I must tell you, because it's entrusted to me and you've got to come to me for it. Just the same as if you were in a wilderness. There's only one well when you say, well, I don't like to be uh, limited to one. or well, say, so you have got have to be limited to that or nothing at all. And here's the one well of truth for the Gentile in this particular. Saul, also called Paul the Apostle, of the Gentiles. whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power. So this man sounds a little bit boastful. when he says, I magnify thine office, but please don't think I magnify myself. So he immediately says, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints. Well, we may say, well, if, if we were all as saintly as the Apostle Paul, we'd be a better people than we are now. But in his own estimate, in comparison with what saintliness really means, and setting aside all idea that he was claiming to have any superiority, he said, oh no, unto me, and you remember how he says, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and I demonstrated my zeal by persecuting the church. And to me, that character has been entrusted this treasure of truth for the Gentiles. He was a man who wouldn't have touched a Gentile. He would have drawn aside from him as unclean and he was sent. And so here we have this man brought low and then given this exalted ministry that I should preach among the Gentiles what sort of riches? Unsearchable. Once again we're coming to the fact that it's not on the surface. It's a secret. There are riches in the Bible which you may say could be discovered by a a person in prayer and study. But you never would discover the secret purpose of God that he had in mind to fill the gap when the people of Israel went out into their present blindness. Nothing was said there. The epistle to the Romans is to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And the epistle to the Romans says that in order to wake up and stimulate the people of Israel, he used the figure of the olive tree. You remember in Romans, he said, an olive tree may cease to bear fruit, but he says, you, a wild olive, contrary to nature, are grass in And again, I've heard people criticise the Apostle Paul, they say he doesn't know a word about growing. Who ever heard of anybody grafting a wild into the stock? Have you got any apple trees in your garden? Well, you don't put a wild apple into the cox's orange, you do it the other way round. And yet Paul was right. Paul was right. There was a writer in the very days that Paul lived whose name was Columnella, And you can get his book out of the British Museum Library, although it's not in print, it's in writing, where he tells you how they treat an olive tree. They get old and fantastic olive trees in their age, and they finally they cease to bear fruit. But they discovered this, that if you put a wild graft in, that wild graft didn't bear any fruit, but it stimulated and woke up the olive tree. And he says, the Gentiles have been called before their time to provoke you to jealousy, just the same as it's provoking the olive tree. So Paul's definitely right, and all the critics are wrong. Many, many years ago, I attended a series of lectures and for certificates at the Chelmsford Horticultural College. The only thing I know about gardening is backache, and I do avoid that if I possibly can. But that's, uh, that's in days gone by. And they were saying... That a, a fruit a nursery, and a strange thing happened. One of their workmen put the grafts of a wild pear into a row of ordinary pears that didn't bear much fruit, and to their surprise, at the end of the year, they were all out in fruit, and they couldn't answer the question. So I asked for trouble. I stood up in the East class I said, "If you knew the Epistle to the Romans." And what he says about the grafting of the olive, you wouldn't be asking that question. Ha, 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 they say, but there it is. The same principle was taking place in that nursery in Essex that was taking place in Paul's day. So, the Gentile doesn't come into the story early, you see. He's only brought in to stimulate and wake up Israel. Did he wake up Israel? Turn to that familiar passage with us all, but we must always keep it in mind. Acts 28 the 28th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Here is the the Jews' last opportunity before the closure comes. And this is most important. It says in verse 23, And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning to evening. So there was a whole day's exposition by the apostle of the Old Testament. What a meeting that must have been. But what was the consequence? It says, they agreed not among themselves. And Paul quoted Isaiah, saying, Hearing ye shall hear, verse 26, shall not understand, seeing ye shall see and not perceive. The heart of this people is wax gross. And he says now in verse 28, be it known therefore unto you, that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And Paul dwelt, verse thirty, two whole years in his own hired house, and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching those things which concerned the Lord Jesus Christ. What did I read up here in verse 23? And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to, into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus out of the law and the prophets. Now he preaches the kingdom, but it's not Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, with no reference to Moses and the prophets. Because Moses and the prophets hadn't got in it the dispensation of the mystery. And to emphasize the difference, it was Jesus out of Moses and the prophets, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last word is no man forbidding him. And you may say, well, what's that slipped in for? All a purpose. If you go back to Peter's time, a Cornelius, a Gentile, who was a helper in a synagogue and a pious man, was told by an angel that he should go to Peter. And he would hear words that would be a blessing. So Cornelius went to Peter. And Peter, who's supposed to be the head of the church, Peter looked this man up and down, a pious Gentile, and said, you know, it's a thing unlawful for a man that is a Jew to be seen in company of one of another nation, but what could I do? This is Peter. Well, he told him that he'd been advised to come, so Peter starts going on, oh, I don't know when he was going to stop, but God stopped him while he was in the midst of talking to this man, the baptism of the Spirit took place, and he turned around and he says, Can any man forbid water? That's Peter. Paul says, I That's Paul. You see the difference between Peter and Paul? So now, in the epistle to the Ephesians and the prison ministry of Paul, it contained this, what is called the dispensation of the mystery, a secret, a purpose planned by God but kept secret until Israel manifestly failed. And then instead of God fading, the man put in prison, as we heard this afternoon, the man put in prison was the man who received this marvellous revelation to us outside Gentiles. And what a revelation it is. So we have this emphasis in connection with the Apostle and the secrets of the Son which was entrusted to him as no one else had seen as a proof that what he claimed was genuine. The um, mystery of Christ, I suppose we could say, started to be unfolded in the Garden of Eden. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head and he shall bruise his heel. And the unfolding of the prophets and right the fate of the New Testament was the secret of the Son being revealed bit by bit. And the Apostle says unto me it's been revealed in a fullness that nobody else can reach. And that was of course a basis and necessary for the other revelation of the great secret purpose of God calling Gentiles into relationship to Christ to form the church which is his body without any reference to promises made to Abraham, Isaac or Jacob and taking place in a time When the people of Israel, as a people, are blinded, it doesn't say that no Israelite will ever be saved today, that they do believe. we, blessed be God we know some who are Israelites by birth who are also believers in Christ, but not a national movement. They're still in their blindness. But if you have any conception of the signs of the times, the converging of wickedness, the revival of interest in Israel, the going back to the land of promise. And by the way, I suppose you have looked at the word sometimes in a newspaper and they say Israeli. They put an I on the end of it. Oh, I do hope you've got, you've got a nosiness to say why. Well, if you haven't, I'll tell you. Isn't that kind? That's simply saying we claim. This is the people of Israel. It's of on the end of the word. It's not merely a national name. We are Israeli. We are the people of Israel and this is our land. That's why they say it. So, in your lifetime and mine, Israel have started going back to the land of promise in unbelief at the moment. They are being pressed on every side by enemies. There's Egypt one side. There's the Jordan trouble. There's the... Great power of Russia there. It's all in the book. But when they're in that extremity, the Lord himself shall descend and deliver them. And so the end is coming very near. And then that solemn warning we had by our chairman, for which I'm thankful, that we shall not be exempt unless we watch, unless we witness, unless we are conscious, not like the apostles said, we are set for the defense and confirmation of the Gospel. So I felt it would be useful just to bring these thoughts before you. I just want to make sure that something I ought to have said and I wake up in the middle of the night and say to myself, there, I forgot it. Uh, But uh, I think I've more or less covered the line that I had. I didn't intend to go very far into it. I am grateful to feel I'm standing here tonight. I know one or two friends have told me since that they didn't expect they'd be going to see me again. And I didn't know whether I'd reached the term. But uh, what I sound like to you and what it appears, I have a feeling I haven't quite finished my job yet, you know. And that's all that life is for, to finish the work which is given us to do. I look back and see that small beginning. i just tell you before I sit down, how small it was so that it may encourage you, you go back to your home and your district and don't think you've got to have a vast society with uh, a man like Mr. Foster making up the accounts and all that. Oh, no, no. You don't need that. No accounts at all, friends, if you start as we started. No. I wrote to Dr. Bullinger. I was 28, I think, at the time. And unknown to anybody. I wrote to Dr. Bullinger, and I said, there's something I would like to talk over with you if you could spare a little time. So he sent me a copy of his book, and I had not a penny to bless myself with at the time, so I had to scrape up five shillings to send back because I've got an independent street which I got from my mother, I won't owe any man a penny. And I thought, well, now what do I do? So I wrote back and said, the very thing I want to ask you about in the book you've sent me. It's no good. So he said, I'll give you one hour at the office of the Trinitarian Bible Society and up I went. i was shown into the presence of Dr Bullinger, a man of repute, a Hebrew and Greek scholar and me. So he said, well, what is it? I said, look, doctor, you have publicly said that you see Acts 28 as a dispensational boundary? He said, yes. I said, then you go mix up all the epistles, regardless of when they were written, and finish up with the second coming of Christ as revealed in 1 Thessalonians 4, when the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel The Daniel 12 says, the archangel is Michael, and when he stands up good he said, thanks never seeing that. See? He said, now we want the truth. That scrapped half the books I've written. I thought, oh Lord, I've met a man of grace here. <laughs> He's a man of grace. He doesn't say, hey, you run away, way, don't say a word about it. He said, oh, I see it. Wasn't that wonderful, friends? Won't he be having a share in this witness because he took that attitude instead of shutting me up? Some people wish he had, of course, but if we don't bother about them. So then he says, I'll tell you something. I started on what will be my last life's work. How do you put that? My life's my last life's work? Anyhow, yeah. the companion bible. But I dare not make it known as I've been denued with correspondence. Don't say anything about it. But he said I've been praying for someone to come and help me with things to come. You're the man. Oh I said I've never written for a print in life yet. You go home and start. And until Dr. Bullinger died, I had uh, several pages in things to come under a series called Dispensational Expositions. And at the same time, in the year 1909, the Berean Expositor was started. I said to Mr. Briniger, who was a great helper to me in those days, I said, you know, we only get a handful to come to this little meeting we have in the house. Do you think we ought to put it in the he said, "Oh, I don't think anybody had read it. I don't think so. I said, I wish we could try. Well, of course. He said, all right. So I prepared a little eight-page for Expositor and it was priced one penny. One penny. Eight pages. And he didn't expect it to ever go beyond that. To our our surprise, a letter came from the United States. They got a copy. And so we found that people were beginning to get moved. So we did the next one. We did it, I think, four times in the first year. That's how it started. Talk about a grain of mustard seed. Me, I had no backing. I had no upbringing. I had no qualifications. I just saw the truth and put it down on paper. And it apparently was blessed of the Lord till at last we have this witness with all the folks who are interested in making this marvellous truth of the dispensation of the mystery entrusted to Paul known, and we pray that it may be used of God to go on until the last member of the church of the body is gathered in for it in elect company, and that may not be many years before that's finished. And then, what a day that will be when the members of the body of Christ will enter into their inheritance, blessed with all spiritual blessings, where? In heavenly places. Where? Where Christ sits at the right hand of God, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Now must take your breath away, isn't it? To think that you could even say, and I belong to that company. Mm-hmm. And yet there it is. Chosen in him before the foundation or overthrow of the world and blessed beyond dreams by a gift of grace, you're not saved but what you do, you're saved in spite of it. And so we have foundation truth, those which are are in our title deeds by law, they must be kept, whether we can ever enforce them by law I don't know, but there they are, there's the endeavour to make it clear that these basic things are true foundations upon which we build, and then we have this superstructure the particular ministry entrusted to Paul as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, making known this secret part of God's purpose while poor Israel are blinded. But there's every indication that Israel are waking up. as every indication that days are drawing out. There's every indication that the nations are going to be gathered together as one. They're going to have one army and one navy and one police force and one religion and one dominating evil one will take them all and say now I've got you. But that's Antichrist. But it'll be short. It'll be terrible but short. And then the end comes. Well that's not our theme this evening. Our theme is what God has revealed to take place while poor Israel are in their blindness. Isn't it wonderful to think that he was not disconcerted, our God. He wasn't taken by surprise. He overruled it to give you and me a blessing. That goes beyond anything that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob or Israel could ever dream of. So that's grace. Grace to the undeserving is what we get in the the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Second Timothy. Now they don't constitute our Bible. But they do constitute the guidance that God has given us. So that we may rightly divide the word of truth. Not take to ourselves blessings that led on to other people. But... As I remarked to one friend, I said, you you tell me that uh, all these things in the Gospels belong to you? Are you among those people who pick up serpents? Uh, They don't hurt you? And you put your hands on folks and they recover from deadly diseases? Because in the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, Paul was bitten by a serpent and they knew what it was and they expected him to drop down dead, but he didn't. And then, Publius father was, our Saxon language says he had a bloody flux, but the Greek is a bit more uh, civilised, he said he had dysentery, but it's a terrible disease and Paul cured him. That's the last chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Is that you? If you're honest, it isn't. But it went right through, literally. Then comes a stop. We don't live in the day of those miracles. We don't live in the day of those signs. We walk by faith and not by sight that we have got blessings that go beyond all these others. We have nothing to mourn over, but much to rejoice over. Well, I think that's about as far as I can go this evening. I don't know whether it's been worth listening or not. I wanted to just stress, if I could, this claim of the Apostle to be the one chosen by the Lord, to be the instrument to us Gentiles, so that you may be perfectly certain you're on right line. That although you study Genesis and you study the book of the Revelation you give a great place to the prison ministry of the Apostle Paul and those four epistles have a balance like this. Ephesians and Colossians give you basic truth and Philippians and Second Timothy urge you to run for the prize of the high calling or as 2 Timothy 4 says I have finished my course I have kept the faith henceforth a crown. So those four make a complete set of teaching, gift that you cannot earn or merit, and then an exhortation to work out that salvation and produce fruit so that there should be an evidence that grace indeed has been the root from which it all springs.